The meeting will come to order. This is the May 11, 2022 Budget and Appropriations Committee meeting. I'm Supervisor Hillary Ronan, Chair of the Committee. I'm joined by committee members, President Shimon Walton, Supervisors Gordon Marr and Connie Chan, and we will be joined by Vice Chair Asha Safai shortly. We're also joined today by Supervisor Aaron Peskin. Thanks for being here. Our clerk is Brent Halipa, and I want to thank Kalina Mendoza from SFGov TV for broadcasting this meeting. Mr. Clerk, do you have any announcements? Yes, Madam Chair. And uh, with the arrival of Vice Chair Safai, we do have, uh, we are now uh, joined as a special meeting of the Board of Supervisors. Uh, and with our return to the chamber, just a friendly reminder for those in attendance to please make sure to silence all cell phones and electronic devices. Also kindly refrain from any flash photography. Uh, the Board of Supervisors and its committees are now convening hybrid meetings <laughs> that allow in-person attendance and public comment while still providing remote access and public comment via telephone. The board recognizes that equitable public access is essential and will be taking public comment as follows. First public comment will be taken on each item on this agenda. Those attending in person will be allowed to speak first and then we will take those who are waiting on the telephone line. For those watching channels 26, 78, or 99 and sfgovtv.org, the public comment call-in number is streaming across the screen. That number is 415-655-0001. That's, again, 415-655-0001. Uh, then enter the meeting ID of 2497-841-9535. Then pound and then pound again. When connected, you will hear the meeting discussions, but will be muted and in listening mode only. When your item of interest comes up and public comment is called, those joining us in person should line up to speak, and those on the telephone should dial star three to uh, be added to the speaker line. If you're on the telephone, please remember to turn down your TV and all listening devices you may be using. Um, alternatively, <laughs> you may submit public comment in writing in either of the following ways. Email them to myself, the Budget and Appropriations Committee Clerk at B-R-E-N-T dot J-A-L-I-P-A at S-F-G-O-V dot O-R-G. If you submit public comment via email, it will be forwarded to the supervisors and also included as part of the official file. You may also send your written comments via U.S. Postal Service to our office in City Hall. That's 1, Dr. Carlton B. Goodlett Place, Room 244, San Francisco, California, 94102. And thank you, Madam Chair. That concludes my announcements. Thank you so much. And I just uh, wanted to make an announcement that we are planning on continuing item 2 today. Uh, because the department head um, was not able to make it and we really wanted her to be here and she wanted to be here. Uh, so if you're waiting for that item, we will not be hearing it today. We will be continuing it. Um, but Mr. Clerk, can you please call item number one? Yes, Madam Chair. Item number one is a hearing to receive presentations on the various direct small business relief programs currently supporting small businesses, their eligibility requirements, and data on how many grants have been allocated in which neighborhoods and demographic data on small businesses who have successfully acquired relief and to present an equity plan for addressing small business recovery in the fiscal year of 2021 to 2022 budget. Members of the public who wish to provide public comment on this hearing should call 415-655-0001. The meeting ID is 2497-841-9535. Then press pound twice. If you haven't already done so, please dial star three, line up to speak. A system prompt will indicate you have raised your hand. Please wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted and you may begin your comments. Madam Chair. Thank you. And Supervisor Peskin is joining us. Would you like to begin your item? 
Thank you, Chair Ronan and members of the Budget and Appropriations Committee uh, for scheduling this item, which uh, we actually heard in this committee about a year ago, a little more than a year ago. I, I just want to start with, is Director Sophus online? She's clearly not in the board chambers. Supervisor, I am in quarantine. Fine. Bummer. Uh, but we get it. <laughs> Sorry, Kate. I, I hope you are going to be okay. Um, so thank you for joining us, Director Sophus. Um, and I, I wanted to put this in a little bit of context, not only in, in the COVID time, but uh, predating the COVID time. Um, actually, interestingly enough, uh, early in my tenure, right when then Mayor Brown was leaving office uh, back in the days when this was officially the mayor's office of uh, economic development. Workforce wasn't even its title back then. Um, it was a very small shop, uh, much less uh, actually, I think in the single digits relative to employees. Now it has over 150 uh, staff. And interestingly enough, at the end of uh, Mayor Brown's tenure, if my recollection serves me, uh, that office um, in Mayor Brown's last budget was actually zeroed out and has recreated since then. Um, so, and has recreated uh, ostensibly as its own department, uh, no longer uh, under the mayor's office itself. Of course, we all understand that departments are under the executive branch, so um, under uh, under Mayor Bree, but no longer as a subdivision of the mayor's office. Um, and I've had, this is a, a relatively rare department uh, insofar as it does not have an oversight body. And in essence, we are that policy oversight body as the city's policy body. So I wanted to say it in that, in that context and also remind uh, my colleagues and members of the public that um, more than a year ago, at the beginning of February of 2021, uh, a broad-based number of community organizations, some 20 community organizations from across the city, submitted a uh, letter to Mayor Breed with recommendations uh, relative to what was happening at that moment in time um, as there was a transition in directors of OEWD from uh, then many years uh, leadership by our now assessor recorder, uh, then the head of uh, the Office of Economic and Workforce Development, Joaquin Torres. And at the core of those recommendations um, were uh, a set of desires that I think we all uh, agree with as a matter of uh, policy, and that was the prioritization of real, meaningful equity and diversity in uh, our workforce investments, uh, in staffing within the department uh, and uh, around how grants are allocated, uh, how uh, loans are accessed, um, and uh, that became all the more true uh, during the pandemic that exacerbated, as we all um, sadly know, the worst inequities in our society. And when I first introduced this hearing request, I was really hoping uh, to give Director uh, Sophus an opportunity to speak to those recommendations and get her vision. Um, so I'm really pleased that, uh, albeit in quarantine, sadly, uh, you're finally able to join us and speak to those 
priorities and uh, how they are going. Um, so in, in, as the budget is coming, uh, we can ensure that we support uh, those, those missions uh, as well as OEWD uh, on behalf of the folks who really need it most in San Francisco, uh, immigrants, BIPOC communities, uh, women workers, and small businesses that have disproportionately been struggling uh, not only during COVID but before COVID. Um, and I'm, I'm also looking forward to hearing more about how you've reorganized the department. Um, and I know that there are new programs that have been developed and old programs that have been rejiggered and staffing changes that have happened. Uh, and just took a quick look at your PowerPoint presentation that has a new organizational chart. But with that, let's uh, turn it over to Director Sophus. And colleagues, I hope you'll all jump in and ask questions as you see fit. Great, thank you. Um, Montana, if you could pull up the slide deck, that would be great, thank you. Well, first of all, uh, again, uh, I appreciate the opportunity to be here today. I regret that I can't be there in person, but want to uh, certainly emphasize how personally invested I am in this topic, in small business, in equity, and in its uh, key role in our economic recovery. I'm Kate Sofus, Executive Director of the Office of Economic and Workforce Development. Um, and thank you again, Supervisor Peskin, for calling this hearing and to Chair Ronan and members of the Budget and Appropriations Committee and other uh, supervisors, President Walton, uh, who are joining us today. I am joined today online by uh, two of, of my key leadership team, our Director of our Invest in Neighborhoods Division, Diana Ponce de Leon, and by our uh, relatively newish executive director of our Office of Small Business, Katie Tang. So uh, they will be here with me uh, to answer questions after. And I'd also quickly like to recognize the contributions of our CFO, Merrick Pasquale, and our COO, Grizia Tano, along with Darcy Bender and Benson Tran in preparing the presentation with me today. Next slide, please. No, thank you. Our vision, is about equity. Um, it really leads in everything we do. Um, and I'm pleased to say this is not a new vision. It is a uh, maybe a, a re-expressed vision of something that was always here at OEWD. And frankly, is one reason I was drawn um, to the opportunity to lead this department coming from community as I did. We acknowledge the pandemic disproportionately harmed communities of color and other vulnerable communities and small businesses, both in terms of health and economic outcomes. And that means that all of OEWD's programs and services need to explicitly drive more resources into these communities to ensure that our economic recovery leads to a San Francisco where everyone can finally share in our prosperity. And so you'll see this equity vision reflected deeply in our investments in the small business community over the course of the pandemic now and going forward. Next slide, please. So our organization, uh, really since assuming leadership of our department, and it will be exactly one year, I think on Monday, I focused on starting with realigning our divisions and creating stronger linkages across them. Um, we have so much within OEWD, but one of the first observations I made was that we weren't unlocking the power of closer collaboration across 
parts of our of our organization. And today, I think we're going to spotlight two of those nodes. Um, again, our Invest in Neighborhoods and Office of Small Business uh, divisions. But I want to explain that small business permeates everything that we do at OEWD. For example, our business development team, which is really about our sector strategies, manufacturing, restaurants, entertainment, um, the vast majority of those businesses and our sector strategies to support them are also small. Similarly, our workforce division, uh, which, which you mentioned, supervisor, um, continues to work tirelessly to really dig deeper and to elevate um, some of the most vulnerable and challenged communities and individuals um, to, to seek employment. Um, but part of that is connecting those employment opportunities at our small businesses to our workforce development work. We've heard from so many small businesses as they are coming out of the pandemic difficulties in hiring and finding people. So workforce and small business are another key uh, to what we need to look at going forward. So we can certainly field more questions about organization uh, later on. Next slide, please. So I want to start by talking about our budget at, at the high level, and then we will drill into our small business work. So um, this pie chart reflects our um, budget, our current budget and the current fiscal year, uh, which at the time of approval was 152.6 million. Um, and of that budget, our Office of Small Business and Invest in Neighborhoods divisions had close to 48 million, so roughly a third of the entire department budget is explicitly and only devoted to small business. And again, we have many other activities in other divisions that also uh, touch um, strongly our small business community. If we on the next slide look at staffing relative to budget, this was really exceptional um, information for me when I stepped into this role to see just how quickly um, the resources that OEWD was entrusted with by you to get out the door to community and how fast that's grown, almost double in just the last two years. And I think it's quite reflective of both the urgency and the need and community that we are all trying to respond to since the beginning of the pandemic. Um, and it is also reflective of the fact that our staffing levels certainly have had, had uh, challenged to keep up with new programs, more money going out the door, um, more businesses and, and uh, individuals in dire need over the course of the pandemic. Um, I will say for us, the challenge of how to do more with a modest level of staffing has been um, added to by uh, the fact that we, along with the rest of the country, have been struggling with uh, what you might call the great resignation and folks sort of rethinking their career paths. And that has led us to currently working to fill about 21% of our normal positions are vacant or in transition. And we are working very hard right now to advertise and fill those positions. But that has certainly added to what in my estimation has been incredible work on the part of our team to support all of all of the activity and the programs and the services that we've been entrusted to. Um, 
I also want to say that one of the keys to how we've been able to do more with with less staff has been our community partners, which we'll talk a little bit more about how our nonprofit community partners fit into everything we do. But those 102 community partners, uh, which include some of our uh, small business consultants in our small business development center and a myriad of community based organizations who deliver technical assistance um, in the community that we have been able to greatly expand our reach over what we ever would have been able to do with only our own staff by working with those partners. And that's been a real key to how we've supported this level of activity. Next slide, please. And, and so director Sophus, just yes, in terms of that large increase over two years to a total of about $153 million, the within the slices of the pie uh, within the department workforce uh, invest, et cetera. Montana, can you go back to the pie slice that do you want to look at the pie supervisor? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Where, where was that growth? It was primarily in our invest in neighborhoods and our workforce and economic recovery. And we could sort of dive more into it, but the economic recovery, um, if you recall at the time the budget was approved last year, which was just about when I started, um, the vast majority of that 15.7 million was for downtown and mid-market imbalances. Uh, and that continues to be the case right now. So we've, we've had a real focus, as I'm sure everyone is aware of, the tenderloin and mid-market and on trying to attract um, employees back into our economic core and shoppers and tourists. So that is most of the economic recovery dollars. And pretty much the rest of it has gone squarely into a pretty even split between COVID response workforce programs, our COVID hubs, for example, and uh, the programs that we're going to talk about today and invest in neighborhoods. And, of the, and we can get to it as you go through the presentation, but the economic recovery, recovery slice of about $16 million, if my recollection serves me, the vast majority of that was the ambassador programs in those geographies that you discussed? You bet. It, that's exactly what it is. And you'll see this year those programs have expanded since then, you know, as, as a result of trying to provide more safety and cleanliness and, and help on the street. Uh, so that is that has been a very big part of that economic recovery piece. Okay. Thank does that answer the question? Yeah, we can drill down into okay. the utility of the ambassadors, but we can get there. Okay, great. All right, so let's see, where were we? Okay, so um, why our businesses, our small businesses are essential. I think this is probably something you all intuitively know, but um, I think the data is always very compelling. We have close to 90,000 small businesses and that represents 95% of all of our registered businesses in the city. Um, they sustain more than half of all of our jobs in the city. But for me, what is maybe most remarkable is I find that small businesses really punch above their economic weight class, if you want to think of it that way. They tend to hire more of our entry-level people um, into, into new jobs. They are often more willing to take chances on people who are transitioning from other industries or young people who don't have experience. They disproportionately 
tend to drive um, their own procurement to other local businesses. And frankly, collectively, our small businesses create so much of the culture and the creative trust that is the reason that bigger businesses and employees want to be here. That is the reason that tourists want to come here. Uh, so they give back on so many levels. And for all those reasons, they are so important really to put front and center, as, as I think we have done with your support uh, during economic recovery. Next slide, please. And Director Sophus, small yes. businesses for the purpose of this slide are defined as what? We are defining as 100 or less employees. And my recollection is that, at least historically, unless I am just making this factoid up, that small businesses 100 or less accounted for closer to 80% of the total workforce as opposed to 54%. Am I, am I making that up? <laughs> uh, well, I don't, I don't know what data I can. Why don't I, can we get back to that yeah, and I'll just sure. check and see where we pulled that number from versus the number you're referring to. And I might have the answer by the end of this presentation. Thank you. Sound good? Yeah. Okay. All right. So, um, COVID impacts, uh, I won't belabor this. I think we are all aware that our small businesses, just like our, our vulnerable individuals in our communities, suffer disproportionately with widespread closures, shelter-in-place orders. And that means we frankly have to continue, as we've done with your support, to exert an equal and opposite uh, force of help and assistance and resources to counter that and help them recover. Um, so on to the next slide, what we have done so far over the course of the pandemic, uh, we have dramatically increased with your help direct grants to businesses and we're about to take a deeper dive into that. The second is we have continued to increase our investment and budget in our commercial district interventions. And we can talk a bit more about that, but I wanna make sure everyone understands when we talk about our commercial district interventions, whether it's um, a shop and dine in the 49 focused um, event, or it is working um, in our neighborhoods with our uh, CBDs, the, the business reason for that is really about driving foot traffic into those neighborhood commercial corridors to support those businesses. So I see it, frankly, as a form of market development for small businesses on those corridors. And that's why it has been, been such an important part of the package of what we do. And we'll talk a little bit more about how that fits into our strategy. Um, in addition to grants and loans, in addition to programs that we've been able to add through new funding sources such as Dreamkeeper, one of the other newer things that I got very focused on right when I started was what we could do in partnership with you to help our businesses who are coming out of the pandemic not lose their spaces. So this whole focus on commercial eviction for me has been quite critical. We started by providing direct education because we found so many small businesses didn't even know what their rights were and what their protections were. Um, and then we doubled our investment in pro bono legal support to be able to um, make sure that those businesses who were struggling to renegotiate with their landlords had were armed with more uh, support. 
And then most recently, and I'm going to credit Supervisor Safai with being a real driving force behind this, we worked in partnership to launch a commercial rent uh, repayment uh, pilot grant program, uh, which we are in the process right now of making final awards. And we know that program is in such demand for $2 million. We had over $10 million worth of of uh, response to that. So I want to acknowledge uh, Supervisor Safai and also say that one of the biggest challenges overall is we just have more demand for everything that we've been able to collectively offer than supply. And so that means for us that we're going to continue to need to really think about how we prioritize our work and how we really put forward our most vulnerable small businesses that they are prioritized and the communities in which they reside are prioritized first. Next slide. And Director Sophus, particularly as it relates to the educational component uh, as yes. well as the commercial uh, eviction uh, legal and direct grant component, can you just uh, drill down a little bit into language access and uh, what steps the department has taken relative to providing monolingual communities in language access? We, we took sort of a, a three-pronged approach to that supervisor. So the first thing we, we did was pull together webinars and we conducted those webinars um, directly and also with community partners in culturally responsive languages. So for example, uh, we partnered with Meta to um, train the trainer, if you will, so that we could ensure that that education got out to the Spanish-speaking community. We had partners to be able to also assist in getting information out um, in Mandarin, in Cantonese, as an example. So that's one where, where we had to um, really leverage our community partners to add into what we were also able to directly do as webinars um, as a city department. Same thing goes with the legal support. So we have contracted with several legal support pro bono providers. The Bar Association is one, LSE is another, and they in turn are also able to offer language competent uh, mediators and, and where necessary attorneys to assist businesses. Um, but it's, it's a constant we have to, to always be looking um, at language competency. And you'll see in a minute when we think about equity, you know, one of the ways that is, is sort of a proxy for how we uh, evaluate if what we're doing is working is, is digging far deeper into language competency, both written as well as, as oral, as we um, uh, deliver information to the community. And then uh, as, as the proud mom of a deaf and hard, hard of hearing child, you know, it's and I, I know we've talked about this before. It's it's increasingly important to me that we we go even further with how we um, make education and information available to deaf and hard of hearing, to our blind community and others. Um, so it is a constant um, piece of our work that really is is up front and center. And the same thing goes with the grant programs that follow out of that. So we work very hard when we have a, a new grant program to again have direct messaging uh, that has language competency and also to work through our um, 102 community partners to arm them with information so that we have more reach into our uh, BIPOC communities and into our not English as a first language speaking communities. Thank you, Director Sophus. And just relative to that outsourcing 
you mentioned, I think, the Bar Association. Is there, how do you monitor that? What metrics do they provide you? What data do you get? And how is that available to us and the public? Sure. Um, I would like to ask uh, Director uh, Ponce de Leon, would you like to field that question briefly as that program sits under you? Absolutely, Director Sophis. Um, thank, thank you, and thank you, Supervisor, for that question. So the SF Bar Association um, reports to us quarterly, so both they give us numbers in terms of um, how many they've served, how many cases they've closed, um, as well as uh, uh, some um, cases. They, they maintain um, some of the um, confidentiality, but they do share like individual cases as examples of how their negotiations are going and progress that they've made. Uh, we have not made those reports public yet, but we are working on making sure across all of our programs, how can we make those more publicly accessible so that we can be demonstrating the impact. At this point with COVID, some of the data we have provided to show the reach has been more around awards of grants, but we are that's something that we are working on and working towards being more transparent and being able to uh, demonstrate um, our reach and how we, we're reaching also in multilingual capacity. I will say the SF bar line is 24 seven and at any time they do have mediators in multiple languages um, that have been able to successfully negotiate on behalf of small businesses. And Director, do we have at a high level numbers of cases that have come in the door? How many have been resolved favorably? What the demographics are? What was done in language? Do, do, do we have any high level numbers that just give us a sense of how that investment and how, how well it is done and how equitably it has reached the public? I don't have that right now, but we will definitely we'll compile that for you because I do think it's um, um, it's it's far long enough now that we've been providing that service consistently. So we will we will gather that information, provide that specific report on that. Thank and, you for that. And Madam Chair, I see that Supervisor Chan is on the screen. I don't know if you want me to acknowledge her or whatever's your. I, I, I was thinking maybe we could get through the report first and then ask questions at the end. Um, is that okay? Okay, great. Do you want to just get through the report or the uh, presentation? Great, thank, thank you. Um, all right, let's uh, move on then to our next slide. So um, as we are now drilling down, so again, we are looking at the totality of invest in neighborhoods and OSB. Um, this this image really for me is very important because it is not only showing how we we break down our investments proportionally but i want to use this as an opportunity to lay out for all of you our our four prongs if you will of our um, small business investment strategy um, so the first is recognizing that we need to do better at helping particularly our entrepreneurs, our would-be entrepreneurs from our BIPOC communities, women, um, individuals with disabilities. We need to do a lot better to start seeing more small businesses start successfully from those communities. And so our training to entrepreneurs, next slide please. 
has been represented um, largely focused on our BIPOC communities. And a couple of examples are training program that we are running right now with Children's Council to stand up uh, more home-based childcare programs, particularly led by women of color. Um, and our Black Millionaire Development Program uh, run by SF Black Wall Street as another example of training that is working towards the goal of over time seeing more small businesses successfully start here in San Francisco and do it in a reasonable amount of time. Uh, we are just getting started with some of these programs, these two in particular, um, our Dreamkeeper funded programs. And to your point, um, Supervisor, earlier, one of the key things I am personally interested in, and we have begun the work now, um, but I look forward to having more, more output over time, is to really tighten up how we look at impact and come up with a more standard set of metrics that we use across all of our um, funded organizations so that we can report back um, in a more uh, consistent way. Uh, what the what the activities, the impact of the program outcomes and what impact that is having on community over time. And I do agree actually a deeper dive into all of the um, interventions that we've collectively applied around commercial um, eviction uh, abatement would actually be a really interesting area to do a deep dive into, especially as we're starting to reach the first um, milestone, if you want to call it that, where some of our forbearance protections that uh, this board put in place uh, will, will start to expire for some of the larger companies that have those protections. The second piece um, of our model is technical assistance, and that's a very big, broad word, but that really is about all of the interventions that we provide both directly with staff in particular, our Office of Small Business and our Small Business Development Center, the SBDC, which sits under now. This is one of the changes we've made. We've consolidated the SBDC and OSB together so that we have under one leadership, under one roof, all of our direct serving, wayfinding, permit help, um, small business support services that we offer directly. And then in addition to what we do with OSB, Again, a key part of how we get to so many more businesses than we could ever reach with our own staff is through our CBO partners. And we have we have 102 examples of them, but uh, Cell Black is, is one um, program that we provide a cohort-based approach to advising a small set of existing businesses who are trying to add in e-commerce programs. Um, Legal counseling is another example where we, through, again, our partners, provide one-on-one -on -one assistance. Um, but it covers the gamut from marketing to helping a business think about uh, where it should be to helping a business think about its own organization and how to hire um, and, and look at uh, their financing to support their growth. So all of that, that whole body of work, is what we call technical assistance. And it's particularly powerful to think about it because it is what we do, whether someone is starting a business and we are trying to help them get beyond, say their first mini grant that they might have used to just get started, to what we need to do uh, to help a, a legacy business uh, stay here for the next 20 years. So it is, it is a key to everything we do, whether a business is early stage or whether a business has been here for a long time. And it is a complement 
to um, any of our direct access to capital that we're able to provide to companies, to, which brings me to- Director uh, Stephens, yes. I'm so sorry to interrupt you. Um, I, I see you're only halfway through your presentation and it's going very, very long. So I'm wondering if you could just pick up the pace yeah. a little bit, because I know there's lots of questions that we have another hearing. Thank you. Great. Next, grants to small businesses, which we will talk through in just a moment, but that is a a growth area that we've seen in the last year, and then our commercial district interventions. Next slide. So we've talked a bit about equity, but for us, it is squarely racial equity, our BIPOC communities. It is also women, our LGBTQIA community, disabled, low income, and we drive equity through a whole range of um, responses in how we design our programs and how we get out to the community and how we engage community um, to ensure that we have impact when we work with our small businesses. Next slide, please. So a quick deep dive into grants and loans. So over the course of the pandemic um, in the last year, um, I think that the data speaks um, to its own. We were able to get um, over 3,000 awards um, of grants and leverage loans. And I want to remind everyone when we say leverage loan, that was a state loan program where we were able to invest just around $2 million of city funds in order to buy down the interest rate on a state loan program to 0%. And through that program, we were able to get over $20 million of 0% interest loans of up to $100,000 out to small businesses. And that was a wonderful complement to the much smaller grant programs uh, that we had throughout the last year that ranged anywhere from 2,500 to 25,000. Uh, overwhelmingly, uh, we privileged these programs to reach our BIPOC communities. Um, you can see the numbers here and we can talk more about it um, as you wish. Next slide. In terms of neighborhood distribution, again, I think this speaks to the fact that we really are looking at our communities that have historically been disenfranchised and not had the same level of investment. Um, the the dot diagram literally shows where the grants and loan uh, the businesses are located that the awards were made to. And um, on the left, you see a breakdown um, of where the loan programs flowed to. Next slide. So in conclusion, Excelsior Coffee is one of a myriad of examples of small businesses that have really touched all of the elements, both departmentally, so worked with the Office of Small Business to get permits to open their space, have worked with us to receive grants, have benefited from being in one of our many neighborhood commercial corridors that receives focus and increasing focus, uh, as this really is one of our priority communities um, to help ensure that if you think of the business as the plant, that that business is in a fertile soil where they will have foot traffic and customers to patronize the business. Next slide. And going forward, some of our priorities overall um, in our small business economic recovery include continuing to uh, work harder at having good government and transparent government. And we certainly can talk more about what we can do, but that is a clear focus of mine. 
um, increasing revenue into small businesses. I, I, there really is nothing more important at this moment in time than doing everything in our power, whether that business is online or downtown, you know, serving employees who have yet to fully return to work or in our neighborhoods that we do everything in our power to increase revenue and business coming in. Um, access to capital is an area that I want to build on what we've accomplished together in the last year. I know that the grant small get out quickly have been important, but I want to also work to move more of our small businesses up the capital chain so that they can access larger amounts of capital over time um, to help with their recovering growth, commercial space we've talked about, and workforce pipeline we've talked about. And in conclusion, next and last slide. We just want to appreciate the fact that we are here, that I am here, and we are working in partnership with this body and this board. Um, we know we have more work to be done around optimizing and speeding up our grants administration. I am committed to approving our program trapping and having more standardized impact evaluation that we can share with you and others. Um, we know that we need to continue to work smart and right-size our staff to meet community needs, and above all, that we will have to do this dance of balancing citywide needs for small business with driving more resources um, in our equity investments. And with that, I will conclude, Madam Chair, and turn this back to Q&A. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for, for uh, picking up the pace. Appreciate it. Supervisor Chan. Thank you, Madam Chair, um, uh, Director Sofis. I, I think my apology is I think I, I know that you probably you and your team have worked really hard on this presentation, but I, I I'm going to actually challenge the premise challenge the premise of of your uh, the data that you presented. Could you actually dive deeper for me? What is by definition in your definition that the data that you presented? Uh, what is your definition of small business? The data that, so which are you looking at overall? Yeah, We've been just, using. Right. I, yeah, I think that, yeah, what you started off with when we first asked, or what, what uh, Supervisor Peskin yeah. asked you about definition of small business. You, you referencing is 100 people and few, 100 workers and fewer. Is that correct? Correct. And, and it sounds to me, though, it's, that's a very similar uh, uh, reference that uh, basically it's based on the state. Uh, definition, California uh, definition of uh, small business, which is 100 people, 100 workers and fewer uh, with the gross receipts of 15 millions. But, but as far as I'm concerned, uh, in San Francisco, in the city and county in San Francisco, the way that we define small business, and correct me if I'm wrong, is really uh, 25 workers and fewer. And in fact, the most recent gross receipts uh, tax reform that we say by definition of small business is really 2 million gross receipts uh, and or less. So I, I am kind of curious, if we were to truly break down uh, by the definition that we hold in San Francisco for small business, which is 25 workers and fewer, and $2 million gross receipts and fewer, how much uh, assistance in terms of grants and loans are we really providing to these business in the overall data that you provided? I'd like to first ask um, Executive Director Katie Tang to briefly comment on how we define small business, if you would. 
Sure, and thank you for the question, Supervisor Chan. Uh, the reason why we use the definition 100 or fewer employees to define small businesses is because that is actually what voters voted on when they created uh, and put into the admin code uh, to establish the Office of Small Business and the Small Business Commission. So to be consistent with that and, again, what created our entire office, we use that definition. Uh, however, just want to note that in many of our grant programs that invest in neighborhoods administers and the city administers that we do ask a question about um, gross revenues and we do reference uh, 2.5 million as a threshold. So just wanted to clarify that. So the information shared is actually actually what we got from uh, business registration data that is publicly available through Data SF, uh, and that is called from the Treasurer and Tax Collector's Office. So, so what you're saying, my apology, Chair, uh, if I continue this, these questions, is that, so what you're saying is in terms of like 95%, uh, you know, small businesses or, or just, you know, the reference point of the framework reference for this entire presentation is that we're really talking about small business that is 2.5 gross receipts and less. I, I can let uh, uh, Deanna maybe chime in for their grant programs that invest in neighborhoods, but we do have that as a question in the application for, I think, almost all of the grant programs. Yeah. Yes, I'll, uh, the minimum criteria um, threshold has been 2.5 million for the majority. So the data that you see here represented in terms of awards will represent yeah, the smaller, the micro, and in fact, um, early on during our COVID relief, you know, when um, individual entrepreneurs that are that own their own business that don't have any employees um, did not have access to funding, we made sure we prioritized city funding to reach to reach those that did not have employees and own their own business. Um, and so, yes, um, the data you see here before you really focuses on that smaller, less than 2.5 million in gross revenue including low income also, um, households, um, and, and those are some of our criteria we use to prioritize these public funds. That's, that's great. And then so then my second question, or just also my last question, is that, you know, uh, Mayor Breed has, and we have all read the press release too, about how um, the city has provided $60 million of like zero interest uh, loans to our businesses across and, and just citywide but but in your data though in your presentation here that you what you're saying is that you're providing about or you, you have provided about 21.6 million dollars loan and 12 million grant um, out of which sounds to me like according to the press release or according also to Mayor Breed's statements that is probably out of the 60 millions that the city has offered so so that's just about one third, if I know how to do my math correctly, in terms of uh, loans that is really provided to our small business. So is that correct? Yeah, so the loans are uh, multi-year and some of those loans are actually revolving loans. So as they get paid off or given, then they revolve back in. Um, our, right now, our leverage that we've been able to, based on the investment um, that we've been able to put in in public dollars is leveraging at one point, I leveraged four times. We're leveraging about three times in loan capital. In addition, I will say um, the benefit to that is that San Francisco businesses are provided a 0% interest, whereas right now under the California Rebuilding Loan Fund, it's more a little bit above 4%. Uh, and so that's the benefit that we are able to leverage with our public dollars 
to focus on San Francisco businesses from the bigger pot. And the second piece is is its larger loan sizes. So, you know, I think there's been a real challenge with so many of our small businesses, and I'll use the word small now, Supervisor Chan, to mean what I think the spirit of this is, which is certainly small, 2.5 million and yet less in our uh, the way that we actually deploy services. But having those larger sizes of capital, being able to complement, say, a five $5,000 grant for um, a shared space that a small restaurant might be building, and then over time being able to also layer in a 0% loan that can be repaid over a long uh, repayment term is a really important blend of capital to be able to give a small business the resource not to just sort of get by but to be able to hopefully get to the next stage of their development so i think it's been a very good investment by the city to use that to buy down to zero percent uh so and one last clarification is that this is the data provided was fiscal year 21-22 when it comes to the breakdown of the 12.1 million and grants so it's what we're managing within this fiscal year Thank you. I think this is more of a comment um, uh, than question, is that we, 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 we learn from the lessons of the PPP loans that we know that you know there are losers and winners, and the winners tend to be those who actually have the resources, uh, not, not so much of the small business, and in our case, the micro-small business that we have, or the micro-business that we have. So I look forward to seeing uh, actually a, a, a more detailed breakdown in terms of that $60 million loan that the city has provided to see how are we really equitably supporting our small businesses. And in my definition, the 2.5 gross receipts and less. Thank you. We'd be happy to follow up with that data. Thank you, Supervisor. Thank you, Supervisor Safai. No, I hit it back so you could go. No, I'll go ahead. I'll go ahead. I, I noticed there, for the public, there's a little war going on on who goes first. <laughs> Thank you, Chair Roney. Um, just a few questions. The first one, just operationally, if we go, can we go? to slide three, or if you remember slide three, where you show the org chart. Sure, Montana, can you pull that up, please? My question is, you have, do you have seven direct reports? Or am I just re reading the chart wrong? No, you are, you are reading the chart correct, and actually uh, you are missing uh, what we did not show in detail on this chart was uh, that I also have a CFO and a COO who report to me. Um, so it would, be nine, it would be nine? Currently. And then um, this is, and, and I don't know if you have the answer now, but how would you be providing support to our BIPOC small businesses, and particularly in entrepreneurship programs, if there was no DreamKeeper funding? Mm. I appreciate that question. We've been, um, and I particularly, given the timing of when I stepped into this role, have benefited from having DreamKeeper resources. But you know, what I would say is, number one, uh, DreamKeeper has really only strengthened approaches to how we serve our communities with a focus on equity to begin with. Um, our programs have always, particularly in Invest in Neighborhoods and our OSB, been focused on 
quite small businesses. Um, I think what I would say Dreamkeeper has done for us outside of resources, though, has really helped tighten down our iterative approach that we use with community to inform how we execute programs, how we design programs in a way that really has impact over time um, on those entrepreneurs. And we are using that experience to to kind of do the opposite, which is to reinform how we are measuring impact with our other existing programs. So for an example, um, since we use the example of End to Actions program, providing uh, training uh, on e-commerce or Sell Black program, which is a, a Dreamkeeper program, um, that program has um, not only received just wonderful reviews from the individuals, a lot of women actually entrepreneurs and would-be entrepreneurs who've gone through that program. Um, but we are learning a lot about how we need to complement much further our, uh, say, existing training programs for entrepreneurship with tools such as um, stipends to allow people, particularly from low-income communities who can't afford to not work and not have income coming into their families or childcare for that matter, um, to be able to layer that in so that we have more equity in who is able to take our training program in the first place. So that is something that we are learning from Dreamkeeper and applying back to existing training programs. So it really has been not just about money from Dreamkeeper. I think it has also been about a really different and fresh approach to how we do iterative program design with community to make sure it's having the, the impact that we want. It also goes back to our metrics, um, President Walton, that we are in the process of piloting with Dreamkeeper, but our intention, my intention, is to spread those metrics uh, approach across all of our Invest in Neighborhoods um, and OSB programs so that when someone's taken a training program, for me, the, the end result is not just someone has been trained, it's that a business gets opened, right? And I think this also speaks to work that um, that this board started with this department just as I, I was coming on board to increase resources at the permit center under OSB. Um, one of the things that we are now working on, uh, Executive Director Tang is very, very passionate about this as well, is merging our uh, systems between how we track, and I'm going to use this word intentionally, a customer, a small business customer who comes to us to get help to, say, get their first permit to open their ice cream shop and how we track the journey of that individual or that business through our training and technical assistance or grant programs on the other side of the house with Invest in Neighborhoods. We have two different systems right now. It makes it very difficult um, to make sure that we are really um, holding ourselves accountable to get the end result of why we would be checking someone you, in the first place. Office, I think you did answer um, the point I was trying to make on, on uh, the question around Dreamkeeper resources. Um, your second to last slide, you mentioned right-sized staff to meet community needs. I'm trying to better understand that knowing that your staff has grown tremendously comparatively to most city departments and, you know, with even the last year. So I'm, I'm trying to understand what that, what that means. Montana, would you actually put up the slide that shows staff proportionate to dollars department-wide? Thanks. Let me start by saying I deeply appreciate the 
investments that this and, board and just has real, just made and just real in quick, new staff. Just real quick, yeah. um, Director Sophus, you, you could show me all the dollars in the world, but how does that compare to the the the, the level of caseload, for lack of a better term, that staff is is overseeing? It's a tremendously heavier caseload than it was two years ago, and we could provide some different ways of, of looking at that, but uh, the way I would describe it in a couple of areas. The first is we have many more new programs. We have new loan programs, new grant programs, new um, new kinds of programs that we're actually piloting through DreamKeeper. Uh, new programs around things that didn't exist before, like shared spaces. And for each one of those, whether that program is a $50,000 investment or a $500,000 investment, it takes staff to work with community to design it and to get it out the door. And so when I say sort of right size, um, it's not about a huge new um, allocation of staff, but what I do recognize and my team recognizes is that um, by not having enough staff right now to be able to curate all of the wonderful programs that come to us uh, from this body, from, from others, and to be able to effectively get that out into community, um, we set up community for disappointment and frustration. And I think that's been reflective in the length of time that it has taken us to get some of our um, new programs stood up and encumbered with partners and out the door. Um, it has frustrated members of community. We know that, I know you know that. Um, so when I say right size, I think there's three things, uh, President Walton. The first goes back to our own responsibility to work really hard to fill our vacancies. I think the second is we would like to bring up a number, a couple of what we think would be very smart investments around very pressing issues of the time. Uh, one of them, for example, would be someone to work with more of our commercial corridors on vacancy mitigation, right. um, as an example. Uh, but we want to continue to work smart and so uh, be very measured with what we would ask of you. So right now, the department doesn't have any vacancies. The department has 20% of our positions vacant right now. Well, we'll, we'll have a further discussion on that. Yes. And, and then what's the definition of micro-business? Well, I'm, I, it depends who you ask. I think if well, we're talking about just, just supervisor Dan's definition. Just real, yeah. real quick, Director Sophus, because that, that's already a concern. Because if we talk about equity and, and resource distribution, it's important to have universal definitions of what we're talking about. Otherwise, we have micro-businesses competing with bigger, smaller businesses. And what happens is we, we basically have people competing for the same resources which is inequitable because you know, some folks are making millions of dollars, others a couple hundred, and then others are even making less than that. So we got to have a universal de definition. It can't be depending on who we ask. Agreed. So just just so I can have kind of an understanding, what from the the Office of Economic and Workforce Development, what is the definition of a micro business. The 
threshold we've been using in the majority of our programs is 2.5. For micro? For the threshold between 100, right? So the, so, the definition that we've been using. Well, that, that's, for small, my, that's for small business, right? But obviously but we have businesses. But the 2.5 is a lower threshold than 100 employees. Deanna, do we have programs currently that are down at a very small number of employees? What's the lower threshold so, you have right now? What we use as a measure is five or less employees. So re that's what we look at as micro. Um, and that capture, I would say, like a, a huge number. Besides, restaurants start to get up, um, you know, 20 or above. Um, but our micro entrepreneurs and our grant programs are divided also have been categorized as so. And so we have prioritized um, categories and grants for five employees or less in, and also separately for individual entrepreneurs, which we found like work as barbers in barbershops. Right. And we found those weren't being reached. So we have created a diverse set of opportunities for different categories based on the type of business. Um, but very much so, yes, five, micro business, the way our programs have been prioritizing those funds have been five or less employees. And we have, you know, developed criteria and different, um, uh, you know, available funds based based on those categories. So that to your point, President Walton, businesses are not competing for necessarily the same amount or the same resources. Um, and we're really targeting um you know, basically the available resources in that way. Um, the last relief fund also had, you know, different levels of available resources based on those categories. Um, you know, the higher amounts obviously were less grant awards. The smaller amounts were more grant awards. So, so yes, that's what we typically have applied across our current um, grant programs. And, and just more of a statement I would love to see how the portfolio breaks down in terms of support that's going to businesses by definition, a hundred or less employees versus businesses, five or less, um, even with a small threshold of revenue. Thank you. Yep. Yep. Thank you, president. Thank you. Supervisor Safai and then Peskin. Me. She took me off already. No, uh, Gordon wanted to talk. Okay. All right. I'm just going to go. Um, thank you. Uh, Madam Chair, so um, mine are more statements in preparation for when this department comes to this committee for budget. I don't necessarily need a long explanation. Director Sophus, you and I have had a lot of conversation around a number of these issues, but I just want to highlight a few things. Um, the Invest in Neighborhoods program has six uh, communities of opportunity or opportunity neighborhoods. It would be good to know specifically in those neighborhoods, how much money has been invested all programs out of that 43 million, which by the way, I had no idea was that large um, in each district. And there's six, they're neighborhoods, but they're within the supervisorial districts. So I'd like to know that. I'd also like to know how you're measuring success for, these, for this particular program. Uh, I don't necessarily, and I've been in office now for five years, I don't necessarily see a vision for my district. I see some programs. I see some fits and starts on response and uh, responses to some of the things that we've asked for. Uh, but I don't necessarily see a vision 
for investing in my neighborhood, not trying to be funny, but I don't see a vision on that. And I don't see how you intend to help with the economic revitalization. We have a persistent, as you know, persistent storefront, uh, empty storefront, um, and vacant storefront along my commercial corridor in the Excelsior. This is something that predates COVID. This is something that has only been exacerbated during COVID. So wanna, want you really to be thinking about that as you come to the budget committee. And then you really wanna ask the question for my district, do you think Invest in Neighborhoods has been successful in District 11? I appreciate highlighting Excelsior Coffee. We've all collectively worked uh, a lot of, put a lot of energy into that particular business. I know there's more, not to say that you haven't done more, uh, but just from some of the slides, when I look at the San Francisco Shines or the grants and loans or the investment, uh, in some of the other districts, I see a disproportionate uh, amount of money going into other districts and not into District 11. The other thing I want to highlight, and, and it's something that you brought up about the, the commercial rent relief, on your, on your 52.8 million city relief grants and loans, it says here there's another $7.3 million coming up for a loan fund coming up for all the businesses that I have talked to. They are tapped out. They have no interest in taking on any additional loans. So hopefully that really means grant or zero interest loans, no intent to have them be repaid. And then also to see that loan fund as large as it is after we fought and scrapped and, and begged for our commercial rent relief fund, which was $2 million. Thank you, uh, uh, Mayor's office and working with us and your office. Uh, but we had 601 applications, mm -hmm. which would equal to about $15 million in demand for that program. We're only able to give $2 million. And then you all made the decision, which respectfully, you know, you made on your own to spread it out by opportunity neighborhood. So it capped the amount of need in each specific neighborhood. But to then see a $7.3 million loan fund on this chart, you know, says to me that something is not lining up right. Maybe you're, maybe you're referring to it as a zero interest loan program. I, I would just say that, you know, when we have persistent vacant storefronts, when we have businesses that are literally on the edge of going out of business, when we have uh, consistently been trying to work with your office and department to get revitalization and, and has not happened, I, I just want to highlight these things because these are the things, as I've said to you, that we're gonna be paying really close attention to when this department comes forward for uh, your budget. And we will be working with the mayor's office to go um, deeply into your budget because we're very, very concerned about the investment in District 11. I, I see success in other parts of the city and, and I appreciate that, uh, but there's a lot of work that's left to be uh, wanted and wanting for in our district. And so we look forward to continuing to work with you and hopefully some of the things that you all have talked about in terms of hiring new staff, attraction and investment will be realized. But I, I just have to say, we've, we've talked about it for a few years and, and I have not seen it realized on the ground. So I'm looking forward to having a, a deeper and further conversation as we get into the budget and we will be paying very close attention uh, to this uh, specific department as it is something that is very, very important to the constituency that I represent. Thank you, Madam Chair.
Thank you, Supervisor Breskin. Thank you, Chair Ronan. Um, I probably have questions that would last the rest of the afternoon and would uh, make you tell me I'm overstaying my welcome. So I, I'll try to synthesize, but I do have, I do want to drill down into a few more questions. Um, and, and maybe I can, maybe we can bring it back for a brief hearing, but I would like the department to break down the ethnic gender demographics of who is receiving grants. It's been handed to us in this PowerPoint presentation at a very high level, 75%. Uh, what's that mean? If we can drill down into that, I'd like to see the data around outcomes relative to technical assistance, which the director said, uh, or Ms. Ponce de Leon said, would be forthcoming. Um, so maybe we can get that in the future. I also, and this, uh, President Walton, I think is important, um, not just as to the questions you asked around Dreamkeeper, uh, but uh, to a larger set of public policies. Um, as this city came to the conclusion that we had a lot of work to do and investment to make in the African-American community, I was, act compounded by COVID, I was actually quite surprised that black-owned businesses in the district that I represent, which is ground zero for tourism and dining and entertainment destination um, travel and expenditures, could not access those funds that were, I mean, it's a lovely thing, were being concentrated in the Bayview and being concentrated in the Fillmore Western Edition so black-owned businesses that were struggling in the northeast corner of the city uh, could not access those funds. Um, so I, I think that, as we talk about equity, uh, I'm talking about the combination of geographic and racial equity. And, and so I think we have to start thinking about that. And I, I guess one question that may seem obvious, but Director Sophus, does the department actually have an equity plan We do, um, and actually one of our um, key focus areas to hire this year is to have a full-time director of racial equity uh, for the department. And then just getting... And it's... And it, yeah. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I've, and, and it's a living document, right? So um, a lot of um, our team had been working on that when I stepped into this role, and we have been... Uh, continuing to evolve that plan and to layer it into our internal process as well as our um, our programs that are out in community. And Director Sofis, in the same um, vein as what I was talking about earlier relative to a black-owned business uh, in the northeast corner that could not access what is actually substantial amounts of, you know, over a hundred million dollars, uh, I've also been trying to, with my staff, foster equity in businesses in the northeast corner of the city, which, like I said, has been ground zero for uh, tourism and uh, international and regional and uh, national tourism. Um, and whether it's Pier 39 or Fisherman's Wharf, uh, there are remarkable opportunities there for uh, businesses of color, and to that end, last year I put money uh, as an ad back in the budget, which I'm still 
struggling to work with you guys to spend, and I'm one of those librarians who's happy when all of my books are checked out and not when they're on the shelf and my library's full. So I, I really want to redouble those efforts in making progress on getting those dollars out the door uh, for equity rent, in, rent, rent credits and capital uh, tenant improvements that would benefit businesses that will ultimately thrive and lead to success and wealth and intergenerational wealth uh, and all of those things. And then finally, um, and I think this probably falls under the rubric of uh, what you're calling commercial interventions. Where do where is funding allocated to street festivals, neighborhood events, uh, neighborhood organizations? Is there a list of those that have received um, those subventions, and what are the criteria and equity criteria for those grants? Yes, thank you. So yes, that is the, the area where those live under commercial, neighborhood commercial interventions. Um, and those programs also sit under Invest in Neighborhoods. Uh, Deanna, do you want to just talk very briefly about how we approach equity in our grant making to organizations um, and how we think about that? Uh, so largely the funding to support activations and events, a lot of which are culturally focused on celebrating the diversity of our neighborhoods, have gone through the uh, procurement process publicly, of which one of our open ones is currently also, and, and you'll see some of those events there. Um, and so that's one way through our procurements. However, to get to these smaller organizations, we have encouraged partnerships. We've also encouraged um, nonprofits regranting to smaller organizations. So for example, for the Dreamkeeper Initiative, uh, one of our areas did focus on having a sponsor helping support those smaller organizations that, that um, organize those events and granting, uh, being really a grant program where 75% of the award was meant to go back out to those smaller event planners for you know festivities. Um, so we're tackling it in different ways Again, but the procurements are, uh, the majority of that funding has gone out through procurements to nonprofits, some of which are very well-known, you know, um, events that have been around for many years, and we're really focused on bringing those back for economic recovery, as well as new ones. Um, and so we do have a list of what those, you know, uh, who has received those funds and the types of events um, that they organize around the city. Yeah, it'd be great to see that list. And you said the majority. What about the minority? Are there funds that don't go out to that kind of solicitation and are directly granted? And if so, what are the criteria for that? And how much money? You know, I can't think of one, one example of us giving directly to events without a procurement process in place. Again, the, the, um, the strategy there has to try to get to the smaller orgs has been through a procurement process, creating a program that regrants to to smaller organizations. And what about neighborhood-based organizations as opposed to nonprofits? Um, uh, neighborhood organizations being generally a collection of concerned citizens. They may or may not be incorporated. They're generally not incorporated as 501c3s. They're generally incorporated as community benefit organizations. Are there grants to them? 
we do not have grants. However, we have collaborated, for example. Um, so this past year, you might remember, we did the um, holiday trolley that we went around and collaborated with merchants organization, along with CDMA and things like that. Um, but it's more common that um, neighborhood organizations were pa will partner with a fiscal or a nonprofit org that then supports you know, particular events. Um, so our shop and dine in the 49 has been able to support some of that level of granularity of some volunteer-based groups. Uh, that would be the example that I can think of um, uh, that you made me think of um, with your question. But no, most of the funding is procured out to nonprofits that then help support the smaller groups in the neighborhoods. And we did and have implemented and had it uh, since I've been here, um, increasing numbers of very transparent panel review processes that involved community, not just staff across all procurement at OEWD. And that's been a real priority for us is to make sure um, that we really do um, focus on our contracting um, in a way that uh, has a procurement has a uh, decision-making uh, body in reviewing all of the responses. Um, that is not just our staff. Um, and that's been a very important, I think, hallmark of what we have been trying to do as a department. And even the community benefit districts, uh, as, as you know, supervisor themselves are 501c3s. So where we do have a CBD in a particular neighborhood and we are working with them to say, um, have their own ambassadors or increase uh, cleaning services in, in that neighborhood that uh, that is still done through a procurement um, and through a, a contracting process with that 501c3. Thank you. What I will do, Madam Chair, is commit the rest of my questions to a letter of inquiry and let you and your colleagues proceed with your next hearing. Thank you, Director Sophis and uh, Director Diana Ponce de Leon. And I had questions for Ms. Tang, but uh, we'll leave those for another day or a letter of inquiry, particularly given that she only has a $3.8 million slice of the $152.6 million. Thank you, Supervisor Peskin. Uh, would you like us to file this hearing? No, to continue the call of the chair. Okay, before we do that, can I make a motion to excuse Supervisor Marr for the rest of the meeting? Can we have a roll call vote on that motion? On that motion uh, by Chair Rohn and seconded by Member Walton that Member Marr be excused for the, uh, for the remainder of this meeting. Vice Chair Safai. Safai absent. Member Marr uh, to be excused. Member Chan. Chan, aye. Member Walton. Walton, aye. Chair Ronan. Aye. Ronan, aye. We have three ayes. Thank you. And now can you please open this item up for public comment? Uh, yes, members of the public who wish to speak on uh, this hearing and are joining us in person should line up to speak now right along the curtains. Uh, for those listening remotely, please call 415-655-0001, enter the meeting ID of 2497-841-9535, then pound and then pound again. Once connected, please press star 3 to enter the speaker line. Uh, for those already in the queue, please continue to wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted and that will be your queue to begin your comments. We have no in-person speakers here in the chamber. Mr. Ku, uh, please unmute our first caller, please.
Good afternoon, supervisors, directors. My name is William Ortiz Cartagena. I'm a San Francisco Mission native. I am the founder of Flecha, a small business technical assistant nonprofit. I also chair the subcommittee for the Latino Task Force on Small Business. And I, I just wanted to thank all everybody's work, supervisors, OEWD. OEWD has been our key partner, our key partner in assisting and saving businesses. They walk hand in hand with us in the Mission District. And I don't know what we would have done without their, their partnership, their true partnership. And um, we work in a collaborative effort with the LTF, with OEWD. And um, we're as efficient as possible with the limited resources, you know, that the city may have sometimes. And honestly, you know, the world almost came to an end. And, and always the small businesses are always the first first line of defense in community. They are community. I'm a small business owner myself as well. So I, I want to say that OWD has been instrumental in saving businesses. And, you know, I, I'm not a sophisticated person, so I can't give you data and stuff like that. But the optics, you know, I, I am the one that absorbs, you know, the plight of our small businesses when they come to my office and they're crying and they don't know what. And OEWD has been a true partner on the ground, like literally on the ground with us. You know, when most people were working from home, OEWD was with us on the ground. So I just want to say thank you for OEWD's work during the pandemic and um, for being a true partner in community. Thank you. Thank you for your comments, William Martins, Captain Canada. Mr. Ku, next speaker, please. Good afternoon, Chair Ronan and Supervisors. Um, uh, thank you, Supervisor Peskin, for your leadership and bringing this hearing. Uh, my name is Jenny Long. I'm the Executive Director of the Chinese Culture Center. We're a longstanding arts organization that is rooted in Chinatown. Um, and one of our initiatives is the Museum Without Walls initiative that activates public space with art um, through street festivals, um, public arts that support the neighborhood and the economy. Um, we've been producing the Chinatown Music Festival since 2010 and Dancing on Waverly since 2014. And that includes a lot of uh, collaborative community outreach to small businesses. Um, this festival is beloved by the community and a deep important part of the neighborhood. Um, we all understand that Chinatown small businesses continue to shrugger and require equitable support um, from the city to recover. Um, I'm calling into just make a note and advocate that as part of OEWD's equity plan uh, to support festivals, um, particularly in Chinatown, um, um, like the Chinatown Music Festival, which is longstanding, but has not been historically included um, at this stage, um, and to advocate for it to be included in um, an OEWD equity budget and plan um, as part of bringing equity to the neighborhood and support of vibrant neighborhood. Um, thank you very much. Thank you much for your comments. Mr. Ku, next speaker, please. Hi, supervisors um, and uh, OEWD staffers. Uh, my name is Claire Lau. I am with the Chinese Progressive Association. Um, and I first want to thank Supervisor Peskin uh, for your leadership. Um, I want to lift up that. Um, as you all know, uh, communities of color have suffered the most impact during the COVID-19 pandemic, and it's really important that uh, a recovery is a just recovery for uh, those, particularly for those who have been most impacted. And this is uh, 
not only for businesses of color, but also for workers of color. So um, we really urge OEWD to be uh, investing resources in uh, folks that have been most impacted by the pandemic, particularly uh, unhoused residents, um, those who are undocumented, uh, and SRO residents. Uh, specifically, we would love uh, for OEWD to triple its investments in economic uh, recovery and equity uh, programs um, to establish earn and learn pilot programs for SRO residents and to uh, increase uh, programs and resources for unhoused residents. Thank you very much. Thank you, Claire Lau, for your comments. Mr. Ku, next speaker, please. Hello, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, my name is Ivan Coradon, the manager for the Latino Task Force. And I'd like um, here to echo what our LTF Small Business Chair, William Cartagena, shared. And also to add that the LTF convenes weekly. Uh, we meet, we are strong partners with OEWD, and we appreciate all the support that's been brought forth uh, by their work into the community. And we are looking forward to maximizing more of the dollars that have been pushed out into our neighborhoods. Uh, so we appreciate all the work that's been done up to this point, and you know, we're looking forward to more opportunities uh, as funding is increased and as funding makes its way into our community. Um, we are here to work in partnership. We are here to do the work, and we look forward to being a um, you know, strong community advocate uh, for small businesses here in, uh, in District 9. Thank you. Thank you so much for your comments. Uh, Mr. Ku, can you? Yes, uh, Madam Chair, that completes our telephonic queue. Thank you. Public comment is now closed. Um, I just I wanted to say that I'm looking forward to um, Supervisor Peskin's additional questions and and hearing how um, all of these programs work in your different neighborhoods. I, you know, I I do want to recognize and thank OEWD for doing a particularly great job in the Mission District. Uh, Diana Ponce de Leon knows pretty much every business and every business owner by name and, and knows their entire history on the 24th Street Corridor in, in the Calle 24 Cultural District um, and has worked so closely with uh, the Latino Task Force, with William, Ortiz Cartagena, who you calling yourself unsophisticated is hilarious. You're like the most sophisticated person I've ever met. Um, but I, I do want to uh, thank you. Thank you for focusing on uh, that neighborhood, which has a ton of challenges uh, and small businesses, but based on the street conditions more than uh, challenging business, the, the success of our small businesses. And we're gonna have a community meeting about that tonight, which will be quite interesting. Um, so it, it, you know, sitting on the budget committee, you realize how different departments give attention to certain neighborhoods and, and not others and with with you know, limited resources, how that happens. Uh, so it's been really fascinating for me to listen to this hearing because uh, it just hasn't been my experience in District 9 
also done some fabulous work on San Bruno and the Portola. So it's, it's, it's good to get this whole city perspective and look um, because uh, that, I can't say that about every department <laughs> in, 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 in District 9, but I can say that about OEWD. Uh, with that, I would like to make a motion to continue this item to the call of the chair. If we can have a roll call vote on that item. Um, Madam Chair, we'll need a second. Oh, I always forget uh, about this. Second, can I have okay. a second? Yes. On, the, <laughs> on that motion uh, by Chair Ronan, seconded by Member Chan, that this hearing be continued to the call of the chair. Uh, Vice Chair Safai. Absent. Member Mark, excuse. Member Chan. Chan, aye. Member Walton. Walton, aye. Chair Ronan. Aye. Ronan, aye. We have three ayes. Thank you so much. Mr. Clerk, can you please call item, and, and thanks to all the OEWD staff, uh, Director Sophus, I hope you get well soon and come out of quarantine soon. Mr. Clerk, can you please read item number two? Uh, yes, item number two is a hearing on departmental hiring patterns with regard to racial equity and progress towards the goal of equitable diversity in city employment. Uh, members of the public who wish to provide public comment on this item should call 415-655-0001. The meeting ID is 2497-841-9535 and press pound twice. If you haven't already done so, please dial star three line up to speak. A system prompt will indicate that you have raised your hand. Please wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted and you may begin your comments. Madam Chair. Thank you, and as I announced earlier, uh, Chair uh, Director um, Eisen isn't able to make the meeting and really would like to be here and we would love to hear from her directly. So if I could continue this item to the call of the chair, uh, could I have a, oh, after, after uh, public comment, can we please open up this item for public comment? Yes, Madam Chair. Members of the public who wish to speak on the continuance of this hearing and are joining us in person should line up now. For those listening remotely, please call 415-655-0001. The meeting ID is 2497-841-9535, then press pound twice. Once connected, you will need to press star three to enter the speaker line. For those already in the queue, please continue to wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted and that will be your queue to begin your comments. There are no in-person speakers. And Madam Chair, there are no colors in the queue. Public comment is now closed. Can I get a second for my motion to continue this item to the call of the chair? Thank you. Seconded by President Walton. Can we have a roll call vote? On that motion to continue this hearing to the call of the chair, Vice Chair Safai. Safai, aye. Member Mar? Oh, sorry, excused. Member Chan. Member Chan, uh, uh, Chan aye. Uh, Member Walton. Walton, aye. Chair Ronan. Aye. Ronan, aye. We have four ayes. This item is continued. Mr. Clerk, can you please call item number three? Yes, item number three is a hearing to consider the city's budget reserves, including current balances, legal requirements, and known obligations. Members of the public who wish to provide public comment on this hearing should call 415-655-0001. The meeting ID is 2497. 841-9535, and then press pound twice. If you haven't already done so, please dial star three line up to speak. Uh, and the system prompt will indicate you have raised your hand. Please wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted and you may begin your comments. Madam Chair. Thank you. Supervisor Safai, do you want to introduce the hearing? Yes, thank you. I'll just be really briefly, uh, I'm brief. Uh, just want to thank uh, our controller for putting this presentation together 
as the vice chair of this committee for the second year and working with our current chair, uh, one of the questions that we often get are from people, advocates, interested parties that come through the budget process and consistently say to this committee, there's significant money sitting in the reserve. Why don't you tap into the reserve? Why don't we use that money to do X, Y, and Z, whatever it may be. We thought it would be very helpful to have this conversation to set parameters around what the reserve accounts have been set for, how they can be utilized, and what help they can bring to our city budgeting process so everyone could have a better understanding, including myself and all the other committee members. So essentially that's what it was. Happy to have a conversation and speak more about it once the presentation is made. But again, want to thank our controller uh, and I know that we'll have a lot of questions here today. Thank you, Madam Chair. And um, is Ben, or our controller, okay. Uh, ben Rosenfeld is remote and is going to go through the presentation. Good afternoon, supervisors, and thank you for having me here today. Ben Rosenfeld, city controller. I am sorry that like Director Sophus, I'm not able to be there in person today to present. Um, uh, but we'll run through the PowerPoint presentation, which we provided to the clerk and to the members of the committee, and happy to take questions about it. Great. Uh, is that visible to you, supervisors? Not yet. Not yet. Apologies. go okay thank you um so thanks for having us again i'll, I'll talk through uh the city's general general reserves sitting in the general fund um and we'll go through kind of each of them talk about their how they were established their legal limitations policy considerations um and answer any questions you have i thought it would be helpful just to frame the discussion of really about 15 reserves uh, to talk in broad categories what those reserves were initially established to hedge against. And, and reserves really are designed to hedge against risks uh, that, that we see ahead. And uh, they really fall into four different categories. Uh, the first, we have uh, two primary reserves that are designed to help bridge multi-year budget losses that result from recessions to kind of carry the city or help the city through multi-year revenue losses that result during a recession. We have a second reserve that has a, has a different purpose that's shorter term in nature, and that's to address unanticipated short-term issues that arrive, arise within a given fiscal year after the budget's adoption. So the first category really spanning three years, in most cases, the second addressing shorter term issues that arise after you adopt the budget in the subsequent 12 months. We have several reserves that have as a concept dedication of one-time savings um, to be used for one-time purposes and to avoid their use for ongoing purposes. And I'll talk through, through those. And then lastly, and, and uh, are a whole set of other specific risks that the mayor and the board identify and then allocate funds to hedge against in the form of specific reserves uh, through the annual budget process. And those, those risks and your choices as a board and the mayor 
uh, as to how to how to hedge against them is a choice you make each year in the budget process. So I'll go through each of these four categories because I think they, they help frame frame the individual reserves. Um, I note at the bottom of this slide here that I'm focused today on a presentation of the general fund. Our enterprise funds and other special revenue funds um, per general government convention will often have reserves unique to their own risks. Uh, so to start with, um, in the economic stabilization reserve category, and so this is that first category to design to help the city weather recessions. Um, in 2003, uh, sponsored by then Supervisor Tom Amiano, uh, the voters approved the city's rainy day fund, rainy day reserve. Um, this reserve, as we say at the top of the page, has got a current balance of just over $114 million. The purpose of this reserve is stated in the charter is to capture above average revenue growth in very strong years during booms so that it can be used to smooth revenue losses in downturns. Um, we have a couple of highlights of how the rules of this recession, uh, how this reserve work. Um, basically, strong revenue growth defined as revenue growth in a given year over 5%, 50% of, uh, of that growth over 5% ends up deposited into the rainy day reserve. And from there, it actually ends up in two places. 75% of that growth ends up in a city rainy day reserve, and then 25% is set aside for the use of the school district. Um, above and beyond that, and I'll come back to this later, um, a portion of that revenue growth over 5% also is dedicated for one-time purposes. Um, this reserve, which is, which is established in the charter, um, has a formula that determines when it can be drawn. And that formula is, in essence, that revenues decline versus the prior year, which is a condition that we typically see in the first year of a recession. Um, and then subsequent years are handled by a modestly different formula. But it's got a, a withdrawal rule that is triggered during the first year of recession with actual revenue losses. Um, the reserve also has features in it um, that taper the amount and the draw, the pace of draw over the reserve. And the concept baked into this measure, into the charter, is that a recession almost often lasts multiple years, typically about three years. Um, and so you want to have a reserve that's depleted over that horizon to help address it. Um, unlike many of the other reserves I talked about, I'll talk about later, there is no suspension allowance for the reserves. These rules are baked into the charter, um, and absent going back to the voters, cannot be changed. Controller Rosenfeld, can I just ask a quick clarification question? So the, the money that goes into this reserve, it's any growth greater than 5% in a given year? It's, it's if revenues, if general revenues grow by more than 5%, the growth over that 5% level, which is a very strong year, 50% of that growth above 5% ends up in these reserves. I see. Okay. And, and then the 75%... That goes to the city. So, sorry, I don't. I'm, yeah, I'm you're wondering how these percentages fit together, right? Yeah, I'm. I think super confused. Yeah. Sorry. So, if we have a hundred dollars of revenue growth over five percent, fifty goes. Fifty dollars is deposited into the rainy day reserves. Okay. Of that fifty dollars, seventy-five percent of it ends up in the city rainy day reserve, 25% of it ends up in the school district rainy day reserve. 
I see. So it's 75% of the 50%, 25% of the 50%. Um, and then 25 of the 25 of the 75% of the 50% that ends up in the city's reserve has to be used for one-time purposes only. No, I apologize. And, and there's probably a graphical way to do this that would have been better than words. Um, <laughs> so back to that $100 of revenue growth over the 5%, 50% flows into the rainy day reserves, the $50. Right. $25 of the $50 that's left has to be spent on one-time purposes. And then the other $25 over the 5% the growth, that 25 can be used for any legal purpose. I see, I see, got it. And I, I think that oh. I think the concept there. Well, it's okay. They just Sorry. don't want to. The concept is not to not to have ongoing growth too fast in the city. Exactly. Yes. So the twenty five percent that it that goes to the school district reserve are their rules similar to ours in terms of when they can use that money. No, the the rainy day reserve was amended several years ago. And part of that, part of that, it create that that amendment created a, a school district specific rainy day reserve, which we talk about here. And the school district has discretion over how to draw that. They have to make a finding of fiscal distress. Got it. But having made that finding, they're able to draw their balance. Um, and the school district actually did draw their balance uh, several years ago, and so they have a very low current reserve balance. Great. Thank you. Of course. So this was this was a reserve that was established following the city's experience from the dot-com bust uh, when we found generally that um, our reserves were not adequate at that time and, and policymakers decided that we needed to be better prepared for subsequent recessions. Our experience in the recession of 2008 and 2009, though, was that the rainy day reserve alone was not sufficient to really provide meaningful relief during a protracted recession. And so at that time, the voters approved Proposition A, which permitted the controller to propose reserve policies to the board. And if the board of supervisors is, adopts them with a two-thirds vote, um, they, they go into law. Um, so following Prop A, our office proposed uh, a second rainy day reserve, in essence, a, a complement to the rainy day reserve called the Budget Stabilization Reserve. The idea, again, here being that we wanted to have um, more in reserve entering recessions given our experiences in the 2008 recession. Um, so this reserve looks and operates in much the same way that the rainy day reserves uh, reserves do. Again, it's, it's taking 50% of an abnormal revenue. In this case, 50% um, of one-time sources that we often experience. So that, that's defined in the reserve as transfer tax, our most volatile revenue source, um, growth above the five-year rolling average of transfer tax. So kind of abnormally high transfer tax growth. And then balances that we have available at the end of the year, unexpected balances um, that aren't already subsequently assumed in the sub subsequent year's budget. So this reserve is fed by 50% of those two sources. Um, and... It can be drawn in years, the, the rules for withdrawal here work exactly like the rainy day reserve. Revenues decline versus the prior year, which is almost always the, the uh, first event in a recession. Um, this uh, this uh, reserve is established by uh, the provisions permitted in Proposition A in the charter. 
um, and has baked into it a suspension allowance. So the Board of Supervisors can suspend this reserve policy with a two-thirds vote in any given year. Um, so unlike the rainy day reserve. Um, one note to add at the bottom, you see that at the bottom of the page here, the combined balances of these two reserves, these two economic stabilization reserves, the rainy day and the budget stabilization reserve are capped at 10%. So there is a, a concept that we have a target of how much money we have to have once have set aside for recession. And if we hit that cap, then the money over that cap begins to flow into those one-time reserves rather than being held in this rainy day reserve. Um, we, we had just for the first time in the city's history, we hit that cap just prior to the pandemic. And as you can see here in the, in the uh, note, our current balance given draws over the last couple of years is we've, we have about two thirds of the reserve still in place. I think it's always helpful to judge reserve balances against kind of the potential risk you're hedging against. And so this is, um, this is a simple illustration from uh, the five-year financial plan, which the city produces each year. And it's showing you on the left the typical or average revenue losses that occur during a, a recession for the city. So when we look at actual general revenues and how they perform during typically a three-year recession, how much revenue do we lose versus trend line? Um, and you can see at the top there, typically in a recession, we also have our retirement or pension fund loses money and pension costs increase. So that's the typical average challenge we face during a recession over three years, about a $1.2 billion loss. The, the slide or the stack on the right is just showing you how the reserves fit into this. So our current balances in the, in the two rainy day reserves get us to about just over $400 million in solutions against that. If we lose, if we lose revenue, the baselines also share in that loss. You can see that at the bottom. So currently in these two reserves and with uh, plus the baseline adjustment, we have in reserve about enough to cover about half of the typical recession. Um, moving to, I, I mentioned moving on to the second category that we have another reserve that's guarding against another need. Um, and this is the general reserve. And, and this is a, a reserve that's much more short term in purpose. So this, this reserve has a current balance of 43.8 million in it. Um, as you know, the city has drawn uh, significantly from it in the current year to deal with a num number of unanticipated, uh, a, a number of needs that weren't anticipated at the time of the budgets adopted. And that's really the purpose of reserve. It's to absorb short-term costs or revenue losses that weren't anticipated in the annual budget. Again, this reserve was established um, by virtue of a financial policy that we proposed to the board in 2010 and the board adopted by a two-thirds vote. Um, the reserve is required to be maintained at a specific percentage of, of budgeted revenue in a given year. So that, that percentage changes between one and a half and three percent, depending on where you are in an economic cycle. Um, and we're required to deposit into the reserve each year in the budget sufficient to start the year with that target balance. After the budget's adopted, though, that this reserve can be used for any purpose that the mayor and the board determine it's needed for, any unanticipated need, cost overruns, mid-year revenue losses, or others. Um, again, because this reserve was adopted by a two-thirds vote of the board, uh, it can be suspended by a two-thirds vote of the board for a given year. 
The, the third broad category of reserves that the city has, has maintained are related to this concept of wanting to match one-time savings or revenues to one-time uses. And we've already talked about the first two here. So these are the overflow accounts for both the rainy day reserve and the budget stabilization reserve, uh, where a portion of that unusual growth that you don't want to, uh, the concept being that you don't want to have dedicated to ongoing spending and therefore create problems should be held for one-time spending only. Um, the rainy day reserve currently has no balance in it. Um, that's been appropriated and spent by the mayor and the board over the last several years as part of uh, challenges uh, in weathering the, the period we've been through. The budget stabilization reserve has a balance today of 54.8 million. Um, uh, and again, that, that can be used for any one-time purpose. Um, lastly, the city has another one-time savings account called the Budget Savings Incentive Fund, which is established in the admin code. Um, into this account, 25% department net expenditure savings at the end of the year deposited into this account. And from there, the mayor and the board can appropriate them for one-time purposes. Um, this, this incentive fund, which you'll see has a current balance of zero, has a feature in it that it gets suspended during recession. So when you draw from the rainy day reserves, this account gets suspended and the balance then becomes available for budget balancing. And that's what's happened over the last several years. The last and fourth category is a little bit different. The first three are all reserves that are codified in the administrative code or in the charter um, endeavor to kind of address longer term structural financial planning concepts. Um, above and beyond that though, the mayor and the board have the authority and you typically do um, as part of preparing a given year's budget, um, identify risks that you are concerned about and set aside money to hedge against those risks um, to maintain the integrity of your budget. So these, are, these get adopted each year um, as part of the budget ordinance and they can be changed by subsequent ordinance. Um, but I thought I would run through each of the, each of the main ones. There's six um, and, we can, and uh, we can go through them. So the, we have, we, we've established as a city uh, a reserve for federal and state revenue losses of 81 point, it currently has a balance of 81.3 million in it. Um, the kind of theory behind this reserve and the concept I think that led to its creation um, really largely relates to the amount of federal revenue we're receiving at the moment and have received during the pandemic and the risk that comes with that. So we have about um, $600 million in FEMA revenue that the city has planned budgets around um, and above and beyond that, we have about another six to 800 million other federal sources that we receive, ARPA, um, CARES Act money and others. Each of those, each of those revenues has a, an audit risk with it. Uh, we know from past experience with FEMA that it, it may be a year after final disbursements and an emergency ends, or it may be 10 years after an emergency ends. FEMA will, will arrive and we will go through extensive audits that often result in disallowances. And so while we're spending FEMA money today, there's a, there's this, a concept of reserving for that risk. The current balance in the reserve is about 12.4% of the proje our projected FEMA revenue. So for every, basically for every $10 of FEMA revenue we're spending uh, today, we're, we're holding $1 in reserve against a future audit disallowance. Um, the next reserve was established last year as part of the city's budget process or the city's budget ordinance, the fiscal cliff reserve. 
has a current balance of 229.8 million in it. So this is the most significant of the current reserves that the mayor and the board have established in recent years. Um, the theory and concept here, I think, is to establish an account that can be drawn as we wean ourselves off of the loss of federal and state stimulus revenue that are really holding together the city's budget in the short term. So um, looking at the fiscal years, the, the financial outlook last fiscal year and the budget process, we had a very large structural gap beginning to, to open up in what was then year three of the forecast. And the concept here was that we would have a a reserve account to deal with that quote-unquote fiscal cliff to help us kind of land softly on the other side of that um, as we as we as we uh, complete our spend down of federal and state stimulus funds. So here, here the current balance of the reserve, 229.8 million, is a bit more than the cost of the updated projections of those shortfalls now. So updating our outlook this year versus last year. That structural gap in year three in the most recent five-year financial plan that, that our office, your budget analyst and the mayor's budget office produced, that structural gap still exists in year three and four. It's, it's approximately $200 million during those two years. Um, but that's a, lower, that's a lower cliff, quote unquote, than it was a year ago. Um, but, but that's kind of the concept of that reserve. Uh, third, third reserve. On this page, we have a public health revenue reserve. So this is equivalent to 10% of the revenue within DPH. These tend to be very volatile federal and state sources um, to help manage that volatility. Uh, this is an account that ebbs and flows. It, it grows when revenues, uh, DPH revenues are better than budget. It can then, it gets consumed when revenues fall less than budget. This was established during the conversion uh, the implementation of the Affordable Care Act, which made public health revenues much more volatile and subject to much more audit risk. It has, it has reached its targeted level. So it currently has a target of 10% of select DPH revenues, um, and it has reached that level. Um, the Probably the largest risk to think about here at the moment relates to Laguna Honda, which is not a risk that was envisioned at the time. The, the uh, reserve was initially established, but as, as folks know, we are working through certification issues with Laguna Honda that may well that may result in the loss of federal revenues to reimburse for care at that facility. The cost of that federal reimbursement is $16 million a month, or about $100 million every six months, or about $200 million for a year. And so when we think about risks in the world at the moment and potential uses of reserves to match, uh, this, this is a, a reserve that could be utilized to help, uh, at least for a while, should we, should we lose federal revenue at Laguna. Um, and then the last reserve on this slide is the Free City College Reserve, a smaller account established as part of the, the board's adoption of the Free City College program several years ago. Currently has a balance of 5.3 million in it. Uh, that reserve can be used um, for cost overruns or other cost challenges in the City College program. And it, it, the reserve grows with unspent money in that program at the end of the year. Current balance is equal to about 31% of annual spending. And then the last two, and these again are smaller, smaller ones, um, the Mission Bay Transportation Improvement Fund, uh, which is a fund established for city services to mitigate the impacts of the stadiums in the South Beach neighborhood, um, has a current balance of $1 million in it. 
And then lastly, over the last couple of years, the, the mayor and the board have established a hotel tax loss contingency reserve for the dedicated tax allocations that go to arts and other organizations. And I, uh, the concept there being to hedge against volatility in hotel tax that might otherwise affect those, those programs. Um, so that's kind of the rundown of these reserves as they currently sit today, established by the mayor and the board. As I said, these are established and can be changed, and they probably should change over time. They're, they're endeavored, they're, they're efforts to respond to risks we see at a given moment in time. To provide a little bit of context of how these reserves taken together have performed during the last couple of years, um, this is a slide, again, showing those broad categories economic stabilization, general reserve, one-time purposes, and those reserves established for other risks. You can see the balance uh, in FY18-19, the last full fiscal year before the pandemic, and then you can see our current balances today. So we, we entered the, the pandemic uh, with about just under $1.4 billion in reserves um, as they are designed to. Uh, the city has been drawing on those reserves during this hard period. Um, and we have uh, spent approximately $450 million on this, on the, from these reserves uh, over the last two fiscal years, or about a third of their balance. Um, just kind of in wrapping up, I'll note that, that we do report often on these reserve balances and we're available at any time to answer any questions that anyone has on them. Uh, we produce six regular financial reports over the course of the fiscal year. Um, you, I know you are all consumers of them. Um, each of them contains current updates on each reserve's balance and some description of its eligible uses and, and mechanics. Um, lastly, I'll mention just um, in the appendix to what you have in front of you, there, there are three other reserves that I haven't discussed today. In terms of full disclosure, I just want to note that the city also maintains a litigation reserve, an MOU reserve, and an audit reserve. These are uh, established for accounting and budgetary standards for more technical reasons. So the litigation reserve uh, being an estimated liability that would result from the city from all claims and, and litigation pending against our, our city. And it's an estimate each year that we actuarially work up with the city attorney's office. We have an, the city establishes an MOU reserve each year during the budget um, that's designed to account for costs that aren't budgeted in department budgets. And then the, the city has a, an audit reserve, which is to deal with audit disallowances that routinely occur over the course of the fiscal year. With that, I am happy to answer any questions the committee might have. Thank you, Supervisor Safai. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Mr. Controller. That was very, very helpful. So really appreciate it, it was very straightforward. So I'm just gonna go through a series of questions just Quick questions. Um, one, when I look on that last page you show with your Excel sheet, the very last chart, they went through all of the 15 accounts. Stop, it starts with the, the general reserve, and it says projected balance 72 million, but you on your slides say you have general reserve current balance 43, just under 44 million. So I didn't, that didn't make sense to me. Everything else lined up with that chart on the this page on slide 11 or page 11. It says general fund reserve ending balance 2021 
78.3 million, deposits 3.1 million, uses 9. Very, very sharp eyes, Supervisor Safai. The chart that we excerpted there, it's just simply to, to show the presentation of it in our reports is from the six month report. So the numbers you have that we talked about earlier um, in the presentation are correct. Yeah, we'll have those updated in the nine month report. So the numbers on that table, which we added for illustration are dated. Oh, well, well, all the other numbers seem to line up except for a couple of, but okay. All right, so that, so that is the, the number that you're giving us, the general reserve of 43 million. Is the, is the current is, is, is the current number. And the, the first two were very straightforward, Economic Stabilization Reserve and the City Rainy Day Reserve. Those are very straightforward. Those are re recession accounts. They can't be used unless they're recession in a prior year. That seems pretty straightforward. But in terms of the general reserve, it seems to me what we've used that for, if I'm not mistaken, is during unanticipated overages during the year, similar to um, overtime, we've had a number of those or unanticipated needs and salary, and I think we've approved three or four of those in the current year, and so that's probably why that number has gone down. Is that correct? That's correct, okay. and it can be for cost. It can be for cost overruns. It can also be for new policy proposals that weren't considered at the time of the board of, of the budget. Uh, so there are very few limitations on on that so this, reserve. This is it's the most flexible new. I'm going to write that down. New policy proposals. Okay. Um, the one thing I should note about the way the mechanics of that reserve works, whatever whatever the city takes out of that reserve in a given year has to be replenished in the subsequent year. So we can start the new year right. with an adequate balance. So uh, there, there is that tension. So. Right. And that's what we always do. We say that we're taking it out of the general reserve and in the upcoming budget, the mayor plans to put it back. But you have to, is what you're saying. Yeah, and I can, if it's helpful, I can, uh, some of the thinking that's led to this reserve and at a reasonable balance were experiences we had in both the dot-com bust and in the 2008 recession, where we did not, we would balance a budget, but did not have sufficient money in reserve to adjust for even, even modest hiccups that would occur later in the year. And that would trigger requirements for the mayor and the board to make spending cuts earlier in the year. So even modest revenue losses would trigger rebalancing exercises. And so one of the benefits of having an adequate general reserve at the beginning of the year is it, it leaves you more flexibility and time to address these issues as they arise without having to immediately resort to spending cuts to maintain a, a balanced budget. So, but I guess then going back to that chart, if we had to utilize that money during this current fiscal year and it has to be repaid, then that money, the general reserve number will go back up. Exactly, okay. and you'll start next year. Um, okay. At, at target levels. Okay, okay. So my next question was about the budget stabilization one-time reserve. That looks like mm -hmm. it has not been touched in some time. Can you tell me a little bit more about what that has been used? What has what that particular account has been used for in the recent past? Mm -hmm. It has not been drawn. The city drew the rainy day one-time reserve earlier in the recession to support one-time spending in budgets that would otherwise have been cut. Um, I believe there was a draw from a couple of years ago. There was a draw from the rainy day or the Visser one budget stabilization reserve one time uh, related to by proposed by then supervisor fewer as part of the budget committee's actions um, to support 
various one-time initiatives that um, she and the budget committee intended to move forward that year. I can certainly follow up with more detailed history on it for you. That would be helpful. It sounds like it's one-time capital expenditures. Okay. And then in going to your fiscal cliff reserve, you've projected mm -hmm. out the fiscal cliffs reserve staying pretty much the same all the way into the end of or at least next budget cycle. When do you anticipate or when, when can we anticipate understanding better that particular, the need for that particular reserve or, or not? A need? I mean, it sounds like we're, it's established, as you say here, to project budget shortfalls following the spend down of federal state stimulus funds or their one-time sources. Have we utilized all of our state and federal stimulus funds? Have they projected into our budget? And when do we anticipate those being gone? Yeah, this, this, our, our latest five-year financial forecast prepared with our shop, the board's budget analyst, Lemaire's budget office, uh, which was prepared in March, projects, as, you, as we know, a modest surplus for the next two fiscal years, and then a budget gap beginning in year three, um, looking ahead, and then year four. Um, those forecasted shortfalls in the years three and four of the forecast are largely due to the fact that it's about that time that we complete our spend down of various federal revenue sources. And so that's part of what's driving that gap. When you say year three and four, what fiscal year is that? Is that 23, 24, and 24, 25? Yeah, so the, the two-year surplus that we're projecting is for fis the coming fiscal year, fiscal year 22, 23, and 23, 24. The the, the gaps that are projected open up in 24-25 and 25-26. Okay. So it's prudent then, just again, just to put a fine point on it, it's prudent to keep carrying that those dollars forward and well, for, the me, for the next I, two years to understand better the, the spend yeah. down from the state and federal funds. These are really fundamental choices on, on this that, that the mayor and the board will grapple with as part of this coming year's budget, I think. As a financial planning concept, having money in reserve or a soft landing given budget problems you foresee in the future is a good one. So, uh, you know, I believe the kind of concept of this reserve makes sense. Right, no, I... Uh, and, would, and would be helpful. But I, I will say how much of that structural gap uh, you want to hedge against and how much you don't is, is a policy choice. I don't think there's a right answer there. Right. So, well, I think the concept... And, and the structural gap has declined some, since last year. And, and um, it, did you say it has grown or has shrunk? Has shrunk. Right. Um, that, that's what I was going to say. I mean, at least what you've presented to us and the economist has presented to us, that is also around the time that we project our economy recovering more in a more robust manner. Is that correct? Correct. And that and that's part of why the structural gap in our projection is less significant than it was this time of year ago. Part of that is because we've had good news on pension. Part of that is our but, but that. That structural gap does include our current forecast of tax revenues recovering. And, and what are the parameters around the fiscal cliff reserve as you've laid out some of the other parameters in terms of spending? I mean, I think the most important uh, thing I can leave with you in this last category of reserves are these are reserves that you establish, the mayor and the board established through the budget process. By ordinance. Um, by ordinance. And you establish them in general terms. Um, any ordinance and appropriate from these reserves as a matter of law at any time for any purpose. 
So it's kind of your indication of how you intend to spend them in the future, but that guidance is not legally binding. Okay. And in fact, the board did draw from this reserve earlier this fiscal year uh, for a different purpose. Which um, was? And that's legal, legally permitted. Which was? Just to remind uh, us. There was an, alloc an allocation earlier this year for affordable housing related to the Prop I discussion uh, from this reserve. Interesting. Okay. And then finally, two last questions, or maybe three last questions. But the, the public health reserve seems to be one that we're going to have to dip into with the, with the fiasco at Laguna Honda. Do we have any anticipation, maybe from the mayor's office, how many months we anticipate the need for help with the federal reimbursements that we will not get at $16 million a month? No indication? I can... Well, that I was, can that provide was more it. to the that was more um, to the mayor's office, but I see them shaking their head. What I have heard is at least a couple of potentially a couple of months to get this resolved. So that would be it, sixteen. My million, understanding, sixteen million times three. My understanding, supervisor, is um, if we are not successful in securing continuity of payment, which I think is our first hope as a city right now, that would avoid this risk. Um, we will have to begin our new reaccreditation exercise, which could take six months or longer um, and has an uncertain outcome. Okay. So if, if we really do lose this revenue stream from the feds, it could be that this full reserve is suddenly at risk and it could be depleted in six months uh, without federal revenues being re-adopted uh, re through that process. That's horrible. But I'm, thank God we have that. There, there you go. There's a perfect <laughs> example. I'm no, well, we can point to everyone. Everyone says, you have $100 million sitting in an account. Who would have known that we would have this fiasco? Thank, you know, thank God we do. It's sad that we have this fiasco, but it's thank God we have the money there, right? Um, okay. Um, and then I just, just going back to your Excel sheet, it says salary and benefits, technical, other reserves. Is that the same thing as you're referring to as the MOU reserve? Is it the same? That's that's correct. It seems as though maybe that was part of the budget, the salary negotiations that were just completing. Is that correct or no? I see the mayor's budget director through the chair, Madam Budget Director. Um, Ashley Grafenberger, mayor's budget director. Um, the controller can also chime in if he'd like, but this is a reserve that we've had for some number of years, I don't know exactly how long we've had it, but it helps us to deal with unanticipated costs and departments related to um, MOU-related expenditures. But it's projected to be zeroed out. We, at the end, each year we establish an account into which oh. we deposit these. Got it. Um, each year there's subsequent choices got made it, as part it. of the budget as to how much to, to replenish. Okay, and it's, got it. And then my last question, thank you, Madam Chair for giving me the opportunity to ask all these questions, but the Free City College Reserve, um, we just got word that the school district rescinded 300 layoff notices. Uh, they did that through working in, in, with their labor partners. They did that through their accounting purposes. They are also in fiscal crisis. Um, City College just sent out layoff notices and made a vote on that. And for a number of different departments, many of which are extremely important. Um, English, English as a second language, just to highlight a few. I, I just, 
One asked a question on the record. I understand that this account was established to anticipate an increase in students taking advantage of Free City College, but their enrollment numbers have gone down significantly. And so is there flexibility to do anything to preserve some of the loss in departmental services that are have not to say when I mean, we haven't spoken to City College, but I just when I saw that on the presentation, I just wanted to ask the question what flexibility revolved around that account? The, the account is the huh? eligible uses in the account are defined by the MOU that the board approved related to that program. So the expenses you're talking about, Supervisor, wouldn't be eligible for the MOU uh, as, as the reserves currently defined. However, as is the case for other reserves in this category, as a matter of law, the wait, mayor and the board wait, can choose to. Wait, I just want to ask, just to be clear. So if we have the Free City College program, but you're taking away options for students to participate in Free City College, that's not eligible? Correct. So that's not, as, as that MOU defines this reserve today, that would not be an eligible expense for this reserve. Okay, thank you. But. No, that's good, okay. that's good. No, it's okay. Oh, well, did you say you had a but? Was there a button there? Oh, I was just going to mention that that is, as is the case in all the reserves in this fourth category, as a matter of law, the, ma the mayor and the board can choose to appropriate money from, from this account for other purposes, notwithstanding that guidance that's included in the MOU. Okay. Thank you for that, but. Okay. Thank you, Madam Chair, committee members. Good, good questions. Um, I'm going to stay with the Free City College really quickly um, to ask Ms. Greffenberger, did the didn't the mayor um, use some of this funding to uh, make a or to add resources to the joint SFUSD City College program for SFUSD seniors? I did. I know that. I'm sorry. I spoke with Director uh, Sue this morning. We talked about that, and that's where the money went was to augment the number of students that were attracted into and pathway to City College. That's what I. That's yeah. what I thought, sorry. but I don't know how. I. I want to say it was three million, but I can't remember. You. There was some partnership. This is not with ringing the school a bell. <laughs> the mayor should tell some her of budget the money, director the, when she creates these programs. Some of the money came from the school district. It was some from us, some from the school district. That's okay. that's the way. Director Seward. I believe that this account was drawn down for this fabulous program that I'm very excited about. So, you know, with, I, I mean, it's fantastic that it was used for this purpose, but it, I thought it was uh, to sort of both boost up quality programming for SFUSD seniors and also increasing uh, uh, student participation at City College, it's sort of a win-win. It's been very successful in the past and was only um, cut in the past because of budget crises. So anyway, if you can confirm, I, I think that came from this reserve, if anyone knows. Uh, Michelle Ellis, my controller's office, uh, $1 million was used for WERF, the WERF program, workforce employment. Anybody recalls the acronym? Um, I think it was Workforce Readiness um, Training at City College. So none of none of the money came from this reserve, this particularly particular reserve. So this this balance of five point three continues to exist, and is, and there's no plans. Correct. That's net of the one million dollar use. 
and accessing this reserve would take take an appropriation action by the board of supervisors so we would we would be aware of that as review so that, that is a current unappropriated balance in this reserve we can certainly follow up supervisor ronan uh your request um to get to get additional details on for you on your question i, I would like that i'm a little confused now supervisor chan I, I thought like we actually have for free city as a program we have a standing MOU with City yeah. College and then they reimburse or, or they get reimbursed per students like that's like the book book cost and the units cost and so that they can actually cover the units like as long as they show that they're San Francisco residents but then this is a reserve on top of the I think standing annual five million per year. For according to that's the right. MOU, right? Yeah. That's correct, Supervisor. You have a we have an annual budget for that program now as a city that covers the costs you mentioned. We have an MOU that governs how that uh, that the board has approved that governs how it works. This is a reserve mentioned in the MOU to guard against volatility in the program's costs over time. Got it. And then and then the the pathway from for SF and SU, uh, SFUSD high school students that can actually take city college uh, prep courses, that $1 million is actually on top of the 5 million standing MOU dollars. Correct. That's correct. Thank you. Um, Okay, another quick question. Um, for the, um, the FET, no, sorry, the, which reserve was I'm looking at? For the, for the FEMA reserve, for, so for the federal and state revenue reserve, what has, how, I guess we've, we've been reimbursed for expenses that we incurred that were eligible for funding from FEMA already. No, we haven't been reimbursed for anything yet. No, we, we, we have, we have, we have been reimbursed for some of the costs that we have incurred and continue to claim and, and seek reimbursement for additional funds. But, and that's why feet, sorry, go ahead. Oh no. So, but, the, but what you're explaining is, cause I, I would love to know what's the, the rate at which we're recovering those funds. But what you're explaining is that this reserve isn't based on the rate that we're reimbursed it's based on a future audit that could come at any point and in past audits we've had uh we've had to pay back the federal government around 12 percent after an audit is that right not quite so the the budgets that the city has adopted in recent years have a, have made projections of when we expected to receive FEMA revenues and so the forecast that we have of revenues looking ahead in, in the five-year forecast is our forecast of when we will actually receive FEMA revenue. And that revenue is scheduled to flow in. We've received some of the, the funds from early in the pandemic. We continue to claim in the current year and then the next couple of years. So altogether, it's, a, 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 I recall, that a bit over $700 million in FEMA revenues that we built spending plans around. Got it. Um, that makes sense. This, this is a hedge against a risk that we will likely feel after we receive that full 700 million, if we're accurate in our projection. And that's that FEMA will come along after the emergencies close and after all funds have been dispersed and begin auditing to determine whether 
the initial documentation that they approved from us was adequate, they have a second bite of the apple. And you often see disallowances in that part of the process. I see. So this $81 million in the reserve is both in case we projected wrong when we receive reimbursements and if there's a future audit that... Correct. Okay, great. That's Correct. super helpful. Um, and I have a feeling I know uh, what Director Kroffenberger is going to say, but is the mayor planning on using any of these reserves to balance the budget? <laughs> Uh, we're still very much in budget development and budget balancing process, so I can't comment on that right now, but we'll certainly be able to talk about it on June 1st. <laughs> She's so good. She's so good. I have to ask her, though. <laughs> I need, you know, we have to have a little preview once in a while on what's going to happen. <laughs> okay. I don't have any more questions. No more questions? Thank you so much for this. This was a very helpful presentation. appreciate it. Can we please open this item up for public comment? Yes, Madam Chair. Members of the public who wish to speak on this hearing and are joining us in person should line up now. How for those listening remotely, please call 415-655-0001. Uh, enter the meeting ID of 2497-841-9535, then press pound twice. Once connected, press star three to enter the speaker line. For those already in the queue, please continue to wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted and that will be your queue to begin your comments. We have no speakers uh, in person here in the chamber, and Madam Chair, there are no callers on the line. Thank you. Public comment is closed. Um, since our our sponsor has decided to leave us, I'm going to make a motion to file this hearing. <laughs> Can we have a roll call vote? On that motion to file this hearing, um, moved by Chair Roan and seconded by Member Walton that this hearing be filed. Uh, Vice Chair Safai is absent. Member Moore is excused. Member Chan. Chan, aye. Member Walton. Walton, aye. Chair Ronan. Aye. Ronan, aye. We have three ayes with, oh, with Vice Chair Safai absent and Member Moore excused. I would just like to thank President Walton and Supervisor Chan for usually being the last one still standing with me to continue quorum at the end. And to Bren Halifa, who's the only one who starts in the early morning and ends in the late afternoon with me. <laughs> Actually, uh, Budget Chair Groffenberger as well. Um, thank you so much. Is there any other items on the agenda? Uh, Chair that concludes our business. Then the meeting is adjourned. <laughs>